If you ask me the question uh, whether or not I like to mow my grass, uh, I would tell you no instinctively, especially this time of year because it feels like the moment I turn the tractor off, walk back inside, look outside, the grass has already grown three inches. Again, it's super annoying. But since I'm a pastor, uh, I have, most of what I do is... um, like work in progress type stuff. Rarely do I get to start a project and finish a project. So mowing my grass actually kind of works that way for me. I get to actually see what it looked like before, see what it looks like after, and then stand on my back deck like uh, the, the stereotypical middle-class dad. You know, I'm like, eh, it just looks good. My wife comes back behind me and makes fun of me for staring at the grass. Um, but I, I do get a weird, strange satisfaction out of it. Uh, so the other day, I was... Uh, turned it on my tractor on and it started, uh, it sounded funny, which is my technical term. Uh, and what, what I mean is it was doing this weird pulsing thing. It was kind of, and then in the middle of the yard, middle of the yard, just completely died. And uh, so <laughs> I hate that. I, I was so ungodly, not nice the rest of the day because I had this unfinished, it was like a splinter in my mind. And uh, I did what any good red-blooded American uh, would do in that situation. I got on Google and I Googled um, my tractor symptoms. It was kind of like a, a mechanical WebMD trying to figure out what in the world is wrong with this thing. And I typed it in and everything came back the same. Uh, they said, uh, the internets said that it was my carburetor. It was clogged and the engine was flooding and that's why it was doing this stuff. And if you're a mechanic, shut up for a minute. Um, I don't know. So, so, so listen, I, I'm, I am man enough to admit to you that until this past week, I did not know what a carburetor was and I don't care. Um, do you know what the word propitiation means? Shut up. Um, so <laughs> I was looking it up and, and then I'm jumping on YouTube. All right, well, if this is a stupid carburetor, what do I do? And I get on a bunch of YouTube videos of guys taking carburetors apart. It may have well has been a, like a doctor showing me how to do open heart surgery. I'm like, yeah, not doing that. Thanks. Um, and then, so I looked up like, okay, what the heck is this thing? So I, I watched the video. And now, even though I'm not confident enough to take it apart, I do know what a carburetor does. A carburetor mixes the fuel and air into a, a, a mixture that will be explosive enough to kind of make the engine run. So it's, it's in charge of getting the mixture just right. You need fuel and you need air. You need gasoline and you need oxygen to make this thing go. And the carburetor is kind of in charge of mixing that together. And it's no, again, mechanic, shut up. That's all I know. Um, so... Uh, if you, what's happening in my carburetor evidently was that uh, it was not getting enough oxygen, too much fuel, and it was flooding the engine, and then it was shutting down. And I thought that was really interesting that you need both. Like, you need oxygen and fuel, because you just, like me, I'm like, oh, there's gas in it. Like, <laughs> what's, what's the problem, man? Uh, and if you, if you don't get enough oxygen into the engine, it won't run, and it doesn't matter how much fuel you put in. Right, but if you're not getting enough oxygen, it won't. Or if you're not getting enough oxygen, it doesn't matter how much fuel you put in. If you're not getting enough fuel, it doesn't matter how much oxygen you put in. Like this, this combination, this mixture of two things is essential to make this thing go. And I thought, man, that reminds me of our spiritual lives. That that uh, there are multiple things that makes our faith go, that makes our faith grow. Uh, and sometimes what happens is we focus on like one of those things and we ignore, uh, I'll just say the other one, I'm going to boil it down to two. You, you focus on one way you, you grow your faith and you ignore the other way you grow your faith. And then you wonder why the engine of your Christian life is stalling out because you're focusing on one, you're pouring more and more, more gas in, but you, the real problem is you're not getting enough oxygen in that thing. 
and, and how those two things, the mixture of, of, of uh, things that you need to do to grow your faith is important. It's not just one thing, it's multiple things. By the way, my tractor is still, it's not still sitting in my backyard. I found, so here's the cool thing. So uh, we're, we're going to talk about faith today, not my tractor. But I was really excited about this. I, I found this stuff called seafoam. And uh, you just pour it into the gas tank. Yeah, somebody's clapping for that. It's, it is magical. I kid you not. You just pour it into the gas tank and like it started right up and it, ro- it went faster after I put it in. It was amazing. It was like jet fuel. And uh, I wish all fixes worked that way that I could just pour something into the gas check engine like you know, seafoam. Like my kid's acting up, seafoam. Like I just wish it worked that way uh, because it would be amazing. Um, but if you feel like your faith is sputtering today, Maybe, maybe the problem is you've been focusing on one way you grow and, and ignoring the other way. And I want to talk about these two pathways to growth where the mixture of the two is essential. And the story I want to look at uh, to uh, show this is in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home soon. The house where he was staying was so packed with visitors, there was no more room even outside the door. So Jesus comes home. He was away. He comes home. He's in, the, he's in somebody's house. He doesn't have a house. So he's, he's back in his hometown, but he's in somebody's house. And so many people come that, that the, the house is jam-packed, so much so that there's even people like around the outside of the house. And I want you to kind of picture it. So um, if you're not familiar with like ancient uh, Near Eastern 2,000 years ago houses, which I'm sure you're not, um, the house would probably be about the size of your living room-ish. The whole thing would be about the size of your living room. Uh, one story, flat roof. Uh, a lot of times they had uh, outside stairs that go up onto the roof to kind of give them some extra square footage up on the roof. Um, and that's the kind of thing that Jesus was in. And there were so many people in there that they couldn't fit any more people in. There were people in the doorway. There were people peeking their heads in the windows because everybody wanted to see and hear uh, Jesus. So that's what's happening. That's, that's the, the setting of this story. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. So Jesus is preaching, probably pretty good sermon, I'm guessing. He's probably good at that. They're drawn to this. Uh, And four guys walk up carrying a friend who is paralyzed. And so it doesn't say why they're there, but we can kind of guess, right? Like if they're showing up to Jesus with a guy who can't walk, safe to assume they're here uh, to see if Jesus can heal him. Jesus has a reputation of being a healer at this point. Their, friends needs, their friend needs healing, so they're bringing him to Jesus to see what Jesus can do. Problem, verse four. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. Couldn't get in, couldn't get close. They've walked all this way. They're where Jesus is, but they can't get to him. This is a problem, Right? Something is preventing their friend from getting to Jesus. There's barriers here thwarting their, their progress to get to Jesus. This is a, a pivotal moment in the story, right? Imagine being them. You got your friend, you're walking up, and you're like, okay, we're here. And like, I just imagine one of them had to have been an introvert and go, oh, get it. Let's leave. Forget this place. Like, have any introverts ever gone to a place and it's been crowded? You're like, yeah, no, we're not doing this. We're out. Um, that's, at least one of them was that person. It's like, I don't want to be here anymore. We'll come back later after hours when everybody's gone. Uh, 
And, and uh, maybe the paralyzed guy is like kind of wrenching his neck looking around like, guys, I'm sorry. Like kind of feeling guilty that his friends walked him this whole way and now they can't even get there. I mean, they're probably a little tired. They're probably, their arms probably burning from carrying this guy. Uh, I don't know how heavy he was, but you know, any amount of walking when you're carrying somebody is, is going to be a long walk, right? So they're, they're, they're probably frustrated. They're probably sweating. And, but, but one of them, one of them had to be like a special kind of stubborn. Because he walks up, and yeah, maybe they're having a little conversation. The introvert's like, screw this, man, let's leave. And he's standing there kind of looking around like, all right. He's looking at these barriers that are preventing his friend from getting to Jesus. He's trying to figure out which one's weakest. Can I, can I beat that guy up and move him out of the way? What, what can we do here? And uh, he's assessing the situation, and here's, here's what they do. Verse 4. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head, and then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. How crazy is that? I mean, so, so this guy's standing here, and he's like, you know what? Hey, guys, come on, let's go, let's go. And, and, and they go over to the staircase, they get up on the roof, and now they're like, oh, okay, what, what now? And he's kind of looking at him, he gets that little like determined look on his face, and he's just like, boom. And he starts pounding on this thing, we didn't come all this way for nothing, and then all of a sudden his foot goes through, and he pulls it back out, and they all kind of look at this little hole, and then they all get down and they just start going to work on this thing. Ripping the roof off of this house. That's the scene above. Can you imagine the scene inside the house? So it's, we know it's crowded. We know it's really crowded. Imagine sitting there, like Jesus is preaching, like blessed be the meek, and poof. Stuff, stuff starts falling, like what the heck was that? You know, boom, again. And, and then all of a sudden there's a foot. <laughs> just <laughs> He pulls it out and, and debris falling everywhere. And then all of a sudden, man, they're ripping this thing off and stuff's falling everywhere. Everybody's eyes would be up, right? But I bet you if you'd looked at Jesus, man, I wish you could see. I wish I could have seen his face. I bet he was smiling. I bet he loved this. Like this is, this is such a Jesus thing to do to say, you know what? There's nothing that's gonna stop me from getting uh, to him. Like his, his attitude towards us is very much the same way that they were in this moment, that they were gonna do anything they could to get their friend to Jesus. They weren't gonna let anything stop it. So they rip this roof off and they lower the friend down and then they all crouch down and they wanna see what's gonna happen. So the very next thing that happens, verse five, a really important verse. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed, my child, your sins are forgiven. I want to point out the obvious here. I don't think that was their primary reason for bringing their friend to Jesus. Um, I, I think the obvious reason that they brought him is because he couldn't walk and they wanted him to be able to walk. So Jesus saying this, I, th- I don't know if they're like, like what did he say? Forgiven his sins. Oh, well, that's nice. It's not what we're here for, but okay, you know, like, and, and probably a little bit taken back by that. But this is an important thing. Uh, kind of the way Jesus works, by the way. Um, he wants to do something in the man before he does something for the man, right? He's going to do something on the inside, invisible, before he does something on the outside, visible. Jesus has an order to these kinds of things. And that's the way it works, by the way. I, I mean, some of you, maybe you, you want God to do some things for you, but usually the order goes that he's going to do some things in you before he does things for you. So Jesus goes after the bigger thing before going after the smaller thing, which is a crazy thing to say since I'm saying the smaller thing is legs that don't work. 
But Jesus is saying, hey, I'm gonna take care of the bigger problem and then we'll get to that little detail that you can't walk. So he forgives the guy. So here's the reaction. Verse six. Some of the religious, uh, the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought, thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Uh, so again, just admit, like they're getting the debris out of their beard and wiping themselves off. And they're thinking in their head, what did Jesus just say? That's blas- Only God can forgive sins. And by the way, this is a true sentence. That the, the kind of authority Jesus was speaking with was something that really is only reserved for God. So, <laughs> verse 8. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Can you imagine standing in a room and thinking something and having someone call you out for your thought? Can you imagine that? You didn't say it. You didn't whisper it to your friend and they overheard you. You just thought, that's dumb. And they're like, hey, what? You thought it. And they, they're calling you out for a thought. Like, that is just a crazy experience. And, and if you know this story, you know that a, a crazy miracle is coming. But this is the miracle we overlook. Like, Jesus just called these religious dudes out for a thought. He read their minds and, like, said, hey, what's up? <laughs> you got a problem with me? Just say it. You know, you don't got to think it. Uh, he just went right at it. Like, that's, that's crazy. And by the way, since they're sitting here thinking only God can forgive sins, and then Jesus calls them out for their thought, what do you think he's trying to tell them? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he's trying to make a little bit of a statement here. Oh, I know what you're thinking. Maybe I'm more than just a man. And then Jesus says this. Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? Which one's easier to say? Well, technically, they're both easy to say, right? One's five words, one's eight words. I don't know. It's, it's just as easy to say one as it is to say the other. Doing it, on the other hand, well, both of them are beyond a normal human, right? We can't forgive someone of their sins, and we certainly can't make a paralyzed man just be able to walk by a sentence. So Jesus is trying to tie these two things together to get these guys to see something. So here's what he does, verse 10. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. So <laughs> he said, I forgive your sins. You can't see that. Then he says the sentence, get up, go to a guy who can't walk. That, you can see. So he's trying to get them to see, hey, if I can do this one, you better believe I can do the other one. Right? He's trying to get them, uh, you, you, so I said something that was invisible, and now I'm saying something that's going to be visible, and you better make the connection here uh, that I can do both. I can tell this guy to get up even though he's paralyzed, and I can forgive his sins. I can do both, and I can read your mind. So, so you better start thinking right here. And then uh, the injured man jumps up, grabs his mat, walks out through the stunned onlookers. And they were amazed, praising God, saying, we've never seen anything like this before. Don't you wish you could have seen that? Like, 
This dude couldn't walk. I don't know what his legs look like. I imagine they're not, you know, they're not looking like they're useful. They're maybe withered a little bit. And, and Jesus just tells him to get up and walk. By the way, he's telling him to do something that's impossible. He's commanding this guy to do something that's impossible. Without Jesus moving, he can't do it. By the way, that, that happens in our lives sometimes. Jesus commands us to do something that on our own is impossible. But with his help, we can do it. So he's telling this paralyzed guy to get up when he can't. And, and don't you wonder what happened? Like, I, I wish, I want details, man. I want to, like, did, his, did muscles just form around his weak legs? Did it just happen right before there? Did it, like, snap, crackle, gasp? And, and all of a sudden, this guy's just jumping up. And everybody's like, oh, like, can you imagine that? Like, how crazy that would actually be? And Jesus just smiling real big. And this guy picking up his mat. And like, thanks for not letting me in, jerks. Like, kicking him out of the way and walking out. Like, how crazy would that be? And the thing I'm disappointed in in this story is that it doesn't tell us what happened on the roof after that. Like they were all, they were all just, you know, looking down in, Jesus forgives the guy's sins, and all of a sudden he says, get up, and their friend just gets up. So maybe it was uh, a, a odd silence down in the room, but I bet there was a, a cheering going on up on the roof when they saw that their friend who they brought him for this purpose is getting up and walking out. They're probably going nuts, hugging each other, you know, accidentally kicking more debris inside the house, and then running down the steps to meet their friend and be like, dude, we carried you here and you're walking out. This is awesome. Now go help us fix this roof real quick, right? But it was worth it. It was totally worth it. Like what, what an amazing uh, moment for these five friends. So when it comes to your spiritual growth, I think there are two ways this happens for you to grow in your faith. I want to simplify this down to just two. I know you're sitting there thinking, there's tons of ways you can grow spiritually. Yes, but I'm going to boil it down to two general categories. The first one is the stuff that you do for you. Stuff that you do for you. And when I say it like that, it sounds selfish, but it's, it's really not. This is, this is important. You read your Bible for you. You pray. You come to church. You read books. You listen to sermons. Really good ones. You meet people uh, with people who um, give you good spiritual advice. You do stuff for you. And that stuff is really important. Really important. You need to do those things. You need to, re- you need to read your Bible. You need to pray. You need to listen to sermons. You need to read books that help you grow in your faith. You need that stuff. You need to meet with somebody who's further along than you spiritually. That's, that's all really important stuff. If you're not intentional about those things and you're not growing spiritually, don't, don't be surprised. It's like trying to start an, an engine without any gas in it. You need that stuff. So if you're sitting here like, hey, I'm not really growing spiritually. I'm just kind of the same as I was, you know, like a year ago. And well, you've been reading your Bible, you've been praying. Nah, I don't really do any of that stuff with intentionality, well, I'm not surprised. You need to do some stuff for you. You need to take your spiritual life seriously. That, that, that's going to be a huge piece of your growth. So if you don't, you need to. I think that stuff is like gas in your spiritual engine. However, I think the mistake that many Christians make is focusing exclusively on the stuff that you do for you. And I think this is the most obvious mistake we make. And I I see so many Christians who are so focused on, man, I read my Bible, I pray, I listen to sermons, I read books, I do this stuff, I do this stuff, I do this stuff, and it's all me, 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 me. And again, it's good stuff, so it's hard to argue with that. Like, oh, for me to say the sentence up here, you don't need to read your Bible anymore. 
That's a weird sentence for me to say up here, isn't it? Like, that's just weird for me. It sounds funny coming out of my mouth. Like, hey, actually, you pray enough. You're good there. You need something else. It's hard to argue with somebody who's really focused on these things. But then if you have these things, if, like, if you're really good at this and you read your Bible every day and you pray every day and you're meeting with people and you're listening to sermons, you're reading books, and, and then you feel like, huh, I don't know, like not growing like I think I should. Maybe, maybe what's happened is you're focused so much on, on the stuff that you're doing for you, you've flooded the engine. And pouring more gas in isn't going to help. If you're feeling stalled out spiritually and you already read your Bible a bunch, reading it more might not be the solution. You might need something else. You might need the other way that you grow. And I believe that the, one of the ways you grow, and it's a little counterintuitive, is when you do stuff for others. When you get the focus off of you. When you start helping others grow in their faith. That is the second way you grow. I believe that is like oxygen in the engine. When you help, when you sacrifice, when you serve others. See, it's, it's purpose, it's mission that God has given us on this earth that is the oxygen in the engine of faith. Christianity doesn't work outside the context of a mission. It doesn't work. It, it spoils. Something goes wrong with it. If you've ever met a Christian who knows all those stupid, he knows what propitiation is, he knows what all those stupid words are, but he's a jerk, that's the mistake they've made. They've done all the stuff for me, 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 but they've not helped anybody. They, they have a really thick, big head, but a small heart. And, and I kind of set out when we when I became pastor of Mosaic to, to really make sure that I did not have a church full of fat-headed, hard-hearted Christians. So I really, really want you to have not just the stuff you do for you, but the stuff you do for others. Both of these things, the gas and the oxygen going into the engine of your faith. Don't just focus on you. If you keep focusing on you and then you stall your engine out, more focus on you, more self-care is not going to pull you out of that stall. It's not. You need to pour some seafoam on that stuff. I'm just, sorry. <laughs> just seeing if you're still there. So yes, you need to do stuff for you, but you also need to have a, a mission, a purpose. You need to be doing, building God's kingdom in some way in your life. Helping people who aren't you. That. Christianity just doesn't work when you're not doing it. So if you look at these four men in the story who carried their buddy to Jesus, they were on mission, right? They needed, they needed to get their friend to Jesus. And, and while they're on this mission, some stuff happens, right? They see and experience some things on this mission to help someone else. That when they show up at their house, their faith is in one place. When they leave the house, their faith is in another place. This experience just injected oxygen into the engine of their faith. And it would not have happened if they had just shown up. They showed up with somebody. They showed up helping somebody. So in this series, we're, uh, we're talking about our church's values, the things that we value as a church. We've already kind of talked about, like, so our mission is to see the lost, broken, and skeptical find new life in Christ. We want people who are lost, people who are broken, people who are skeptical to uh, 
have an experience with Jesus to, to find out who he is and what he can do and, and for that to change their lives. That's our mission and Jesus gave us that mission. Uh, so that's not gonna change. And then our vision as a church, which helps kind of narrow down the kind of church we wanna be, is to be a church for people who don't think church is for them. That's the kind of church we wanna be. We wanna be a church where uh, if somebody, if you ever try to invite somebody to church and they go, ah, yeah, that church stuff's not for me, you get to immediately say, built-in response, that's perfect because that's exactly what our church is for. Look at the, my shirt, it says it right on the back. Like, you get to do that stuff, right? Um, that's, it's supposed to be really, really easy for us because that's who we're after, man. We're not after the religious people. We're not after the people who already know Jesus. There's plenty of good churches. They're going to them. We're not trying to steal them. We're after people who don't know Jesus yet. The people who think that when they show up to church, it's gonna be hard. Like they're gonna get judged. They're, gonna get, they're not gonna know what's going on. Uh, we want them. So our, our vision helps narrow down and, and, and help us really kind of understand who we are a little bit more, but then our values really help round out the kind of culture that we're trying to create here. Like what, we, what it feels like to be a part of Mosaic. And some of these are descriptive in that we have, have them down and then some of them are prescriptive in that we're, we're not there yet, but we're still trying to uh, embody these things. And the one uh, I wanna talk to you about today that I have been talking to you about today is uh, includer or spectator. Am I including others or just consuming? We always ask them in questions because it's that we ask, I ask myself this. Am I included or a spectator? Am I including others or am I just consuming? Because we want to be uh, a church full of obsessive includers. I, I want us all to be people who are constantly thinking about how can I include others in my faith. In the story we just read, there were two kinds of people, right? There were includers and there were spectators. I believe the includers had a different experience than the spectators. They all experienced something cool, but the includers had a depth to it. Their souls, I just think, moved more because of their involvement in what happened rather than just standing watching it. So let me ask you, I don't know, like, do you do the thing where, like, if you watch a movie or read a story, like, you put yourself in one of the characters, do you do that? Like, I'm automatic, and I'm always the hero, it's weird. Um, but do you do it in stories like this where you're like, who would you want to be in this story? Like, baseline, I know, who cares? Jesus is there, it's awesome that you're there. Cool, get over that, and then who do you want to be, right? Because everybody got to experience Jesus doing something awesome. But if you had to pick in this story, which, which person would you want to be? I mean, obviously, you'd want to be one of the four, right? You'd want to be that, that person who, who, yeah, my arm burned the whole way here, and, and yeah, uh, my hands are a little messed up from tearing this roof off, but... I got a celebration. I got to see my friend who couldn't walk be able to walk and, and my faith just exploded because of being a part of what happened. You want to be one of the four, right? I'm going to assume the answer to that is yes. So I want to give you some observations about these men uh, that can help us kind of see who they are and maybe break down how we can be like them as well. Um, so the first thing, kind of obvious, uh, they were... They carried their friend. They carried their friend. Um, they were willing to carry someone to Jesus who could not make it to Jesus himself. Uh, and I think there's just some initiative there. And I am making the assumption that, I'm making the assumption that this paralyzed guy did not beg these guys to do this. And I'm, it's context clues in the story. The way they act when they get there and the fact that they ripped the roof off kind of tells me that like they weren't begged to do this. Because if you were begged to do this, you ever been asked to help somebody move and you're like, yeah, move. And you kind of like, 
picking up boxes. Like, are we done yet? Did you get me pizza? Because by the way, if you ask somebody to move, you owe them pizza at least. Um, it's part of the unwritten rules of life. But if they were coerced into doing this, I don't think they would have the same zeal. So I think the way it went down is this guy's paralyzed. They hear this rumor that Jesus is somewhere and they're like, man, we got we to gotta get our buddy to Jesus. What, can you, have you heard some of the stories about this guy? Like he can, he can make blind eyes see. He, he's, he's doing amazing things. We got to get him to Jesus. So they, they take some initiative. Admittedly, the paralyzed guy like couldn't do anything about it. Like, dude, hey, we're coming with us. Like he couldn't get away from them. But there was some initiative in that. They, they went after their friend and said, we're doing this thing. We're coming to Jesus. And I think that that's something we can learn in our lives. Like when we, uh, we have these people in our lives who don't know Jesus, don't have any interest in Jesus, like we need to take some initiative there. I think a lot of times we're super passive in our relationships in our life and we just don't say anything. We kind of wait for somebody to, to invite themselves. But I think if we want to be includers, if we want to be like these four, we need to take some initiative and actually have some conversations, initiate some conversations with the people in our lives. Because like, we, we believe that Jesus still changes lives, right? We, we still believe that, don't we? Like, like that a relationship with the creator of the universe would be a good thing for somebody, that it might just change everything for them. We, we still believe that, right? We still believe that, that Jesus coming to earth was the biggest deal ever. We still believe that Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins and that that fact it's the thing that, that saves our souls and, and begins this relationship with God and gives us a home in heaven. We still believe all that, right? And if we do, it's probably something we should share with others. Take some initiative to get them to Jesus. Walk with them, carry them if necessary. So that's the four, first thing, they carry their friend. The second thing that I notice about these four is that they were undeterred by barriers. Um, they, fit, they make it to where Jesus is, but they can't get in, and there are barriers blocking them. And um, they could have given up, but they didn't. They could have said, forget this, but they didn't. I, no, I, could, I could veer off right now and talk about our other value, by the way, that grit, don't grit or quit. Uh, am, I, am I giving up or am I going to keep going? Am I letting these little barriers prevent me? We could talk about that, that value, but we'll hit that one later. Um, they definitely have grit here. They, they don't let little things stop them from doing. They didn't, they didn't get there and go, oh man, this, maybe it's not God's will that we do this today. <laughs> they didn't do that. They, like, they didn't do the thing where, you know, when people say, well, when God shuts a door, sometimes he opens a window. No, sometimes he expects you to rip the roof off. That's, that's part of it. Um, they didn't do that, though. They didn't do the thing. Uh, they pushed through. But that's not what I want to talk to you about. When it comes to barriers, uh, barriers to stuff like this, I want to point out one that I think is really big, um, maybe the biggest barrier for you when it comes to including people in your faith. And I'm just going to say it like that. I don't necessarily mean like, evangelizing or sharing your faith with some random stranger. I just mean including people in your faith. And I think that has a broad meaning. I think the biggest barrier to you doing that is you don't think you should. Can I say it like that? You just don't think you should. Uh, and here's why I think that. Um, Barna just did a survey of millennials. Uh, definition of millennial, according to Barna, is somebody who is 18 to their mid-30s, so even if you disassociate yourself from those people, uh, if you're in your mid-30s, you were included in this group, okay? Um, so get over it, I know. Um, they found in this survey 
that 47% of millennials believe that sharing their faith with someone who did not have their faith was wrong. It was wrong to do it. Um, 47, that's like half. Half of millennials believe that sharing their faith with somebody who does not have the same faith is actually not something they are supposed to do. And I have a theory as to why. They worded the question weird in the survey. That might be one reason. The second reason is because I think that we, as millennials, I'm saying we, um, have seen it done the wrong way so much that when somebody says, should we share a faith with people, we think, well, yeah, I remember that guy and I remember seeing that. No, <laughs> we shouldn't do it because I've seen these people uh, do it so wrong and so backwards that I don't want to do that. So for example, for example, we, our church office is uh, downtown Wandsworth now, which means that anybody can walk in off the street and sometimes they do. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I had a guy come down and visit me. And sometimes it's fun and sometimes it's not. This was one of the ones that was not. Uh, he was a Christian already, which made it, I was going to say boring. <laughs> it was. He started asking me a bunch of questions about the church. I felt like I was getting grilled. It was weird. Like he had the hot lamp on me. Um, and I was like, hey man, I love this church. It's like my favorite subject. I've talked about church all day long. So I started talking about how important people who aren't Christians are to our church and our little, you know, we're church people don't think church of them. He's like, yeah, I saw it on your sign. I'm like, well, then you already know, shut up. Um, he was kind of being aggressive and I was sitting down and he was standing. So then I stood up because he was like 5'2 and I'm 6'2 and I wanted to intimidate him a little bit. Uh, and then uh, he started, because I was talking about how important people who don't know Jesus are to us. And that's, that's like our heartbeat. We're on this mission. We really, really care about that. And he started talking about some of his experiences in trying to share his faith with people. <laughs> and uh, if the conversations went anything like our conversation, I'm not surprised he didn't succeed. Uh, he was talking about, and it sounded very much like a, like a used car salesman, like these really hard, like in your face, kind of like pounding on people, like just a, an aggressive attitude towards people. And then he's like, yeah, no, it, it, it didn't work. I'm like, really? <laughs> I'm surprised. And then, I kid you not, I kid you not, I kid you not, this is not a lie. He bragged to me about how big his Bible was. <laughs> and it made me uncomfortable. Because <laughs> I'm like, well, mine's just on my phone. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to say it. You guys already know what I'm thinking, right? It's not how big it is. It's how you use it. And when he walked away, when he walked back out of the office, I'm sorry, by the way. We have a meeting with the elders later. I will be talking about that. When he walked away, I felt, I, I don't know, dirty, like weird, like, not like that. Gosh dang it. <laughs> maybe that was maybe that was part of it. I don't know. Um, but I just felt this like weird tension in my soul. Like, is this the, why are Christians so weird? Like, why can't we just be normal? Like, if this is how an unbeliever feels after talking to a Christian, no wonder they don't want anything to do with it. It's just, it's just weird. And, and if, if that's what it is to share your faith, then no wonder 47% of millennials are like, I don't want any part of that. I get it. I get it. Like, I really don't ever want to have a conversation like that uh, again. But just because we've seen it done wrong so much doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it, right? Maybe we should find 
a better way. And I think so much of it has to do with your attitude. You've probably heard it said, like the, the attitude we're supposed to have is like one beggar who's found bread telling other beggars where the bread is. Like there's no arrogance in that, right? There's no, there's no used car salesman attitude in that. We're just like, hey guys, <laughs> you can fill your bellies over here. And if they don't want it, okay, or they want to complain about the kind of bread, like, okay, but, but we're just showing you, hey, this is something that God has done for me and I want you to experience the same thing that I've experienced. It's not an arrogant stance. It's not in your face. It's an invitation to something that's life-giving. And I think a great non-in-your-face, non-bragging about how big your Bible is, uh, non-arrogant way to start something like this is to just invite people to church. Um, that's not sharing your faith. That's inviting somebody to church. There are kind of two separate things. But it's such an easy, like, non-intrusive thing to do. Like, you don't have to, like, be, do you believe in Jesus? Like, you're, you should come with me on Sunday. Maybe even maybe don't just invite him. Maybe tell him you'll come pick him up. Maybe you got to carry him, kind of like the, the paralyzed guy in the story. Maybe maybe you got to bribe him. Maybe you got to buy him coffee. Maybe you gotta buy him breakfast. I don't care. Bribe him. Do it. But don't let anything stand in the way. Don't let any barrier stop you. Rip that roof off. Do what you got to do to get the people in your life to meet the God that you serve and to see what He's done in your heart and in your life. You want them to experience that as well. Rip any barrier off. Anything you can. And then the last thing related to this that I want to make the observation about these guys is that they were willing to get their hands dirty. They were willing to get their hands dirty. They were willing to get a little messy, ripping that roof off. I would even imagine maybe a little bloody. I bet you they ripped their hands up as they ripped the roof off. And you need to know that helping others is going to cost you something. You know that, right? Anytime you've ever tried to do it, you, you find out real quick that helping people is messy. The people, even when you're trying to help, can hurt you. But if you want to see God move in people's lives, it requires a mess. By the way, that's another, we don't have this as a stated value, but, but this church has to remain a little messy. You know that, right? If we all get our lives together and we're all uh, perfectly following Jesus together and nobody's here making a mess of things, we're doing something wrong. I just talked to a guy this past week who has a church just like that, and I was getting mad, and I had to control myself to not say, like, that's just wrong. You shouldn't all be just sitting in this room happy in your own little Christian world. You should be caring about the people who aren't here yet. He even told me that, like, <laughs> this is funny, um, they, they, uh, they're concerned about um, security at their church, so they have this policy now that when service starts, they lock the doors. And I was like, well, that wouldn't work here, because uh, nobody's here when service starts, <laughs> so... <laughs> You guys would just all be out there. Thanks to be you, you know. Um, but for me, like, that's, that, that, that's a, a physical thing, but I think it says something spiritually about the attitude, right? Like, it's supposed to be a little bit messy. It's supposed to be a little bit risky. Like, we're trying to help people, and people are messy, and people are hurt, and they're, they're, they're jacked up, and when we try to help them, it's, it's going to be messy. And, and that's going to be the truth for you as you try to help people in your life, as you take that step and you take that initiative and you try to break through some of those barriers, it's going to get hard. It's gonna, they're going to maybe push back. They're going to hurt you. It's, it's going to create a mess in your life that you wouldn't have if you didn't do it. But you also don't get to see what happens on the other side of that roof if you don't. You don't get to experience that. So either rip the roof off, get your hands a little messy, get your hands a little bloody, or don't. 
But there are consequences to both. And I think it's worth a little blood and a little mud on your hands. I really do. And that's the kind of church that we're going to be. Now, there's one last detail that I want to point out in the story that uh, when I was back in college, one of my professors pointed out, and it stuck with me ever since. It's in verse 5. I told you this verse is really important. And it's just these two little words. This says that Jesus, seeing their faith, seeing their faith, said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. Plural. There. It's a collective thing. This man, singular, is healed and forgiven. But Jesus seems to say like, that it was sparked by a collective faith. That's crazy, isn't it? Because like, for me, in these stories, I'm always like, oh, it's, it's the person's faith, right? He's after the person, the person who's sick, the person who's blind. He's looking, he's just reading their soul, you know, with some x-ray vision. And if they have faith, boom, it happens. But this story, it's different. He specifically says that he's not just looking at this paralyzed guy's heart. He looks up and he looks at the, the four hearts that are still looking down through this hole. And he sees their faith and his faith, their faith collectively. And then he does some amazing things. A, there's there's a, a plurality to it. We usually think that the pressure's on the person. But here Jesus seems to be triggered by a collective faith. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And I really, really feel like that's the way church is supposed to work. We, we get to see God do amazing things in people's lives. We do, just like these four guys did. We get to be a part of something awesome because we're not just spectators, we're includers. We, we bring people along with us and our faith together helps uh, move things spiritually. Don't you wonder what God could do with a church full of includers? like these four guys? What, what God would, could do, man, if he looked down and saw our collective faith? What, what would God do with a church that was willing to smash through every barrier, get our hands dirty, get our hands bloody, to rip roofs off buildings, to drop eggs out of helicopters, to invite our friends, to drive our friends, to buy our friends breakfast, to do whatever we could to have those tough conversations, those good conversations, to bring people to him? What could he do with a church like that? See a a city transformed if we took it seriously. And again, this is the weird way it works. It's sitting here talking about helping other people, but I think it'll help you. This is what I'm saying. Like it's, it's, a, it's a weird circular thing. You, you start helping other people and somehow God uses that to help you. you. You start helping other people grow in their faith and God somehow uses that to grow your faith. So again, yeah, you need the gas, man. You, you need to read your Bible. You need to pray. You need to meet with people. You need to read books. You need to do all that. That's the gas. But then you need to turn around and need to start helping some other people find their faith. And that's going to be the oxygen. And those two things together, it's what keeps this thing going. If you just focus on the one, you're going to stall out. You need both. And we need both. We have to be a church that does both. Obsessive includers, not just spectators. So I don't know what that means for you. I don't know if as I'm talking here, maybe God's laying some people on your heart where you need to have some conversations, send some texts, invite some people, buy somebody coffee. I don't know what it means for you, uh, but I really hope that God's kind of popping some people's names into your heads right now. And that maybe this will be the thing that sparks the engine of your faith.